You're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Welcome to our No Holes Barred edition. It's Rock Bottom Off the Leash. Today we're going to talk about flood recovery advice, crow deterrence, and the greatest ever golf course stuff. And we'll even throw in a story time. Brought to you by Vinyl Guard. Okay, you've hit rock bottom radio, where our first topic today is flood recovery. Having had the misfortune to work on, build, renovate, fix, and suffer through several golf courses prone to floods, I have declared myself a golf course flood expert. While serving my 12-year sentence at below Atlanta, the course flooded over 50 times. During the great deluge of 1994, where remnants of a hurricane parked itself over central Georgia and dropped 24 inches in 24 hours, closed every bridge from Peachtree City southward 100 miles, our course flooded 12 times in one year. Now, I'm not talking about little annoyances where water rises and a couple of fairways are soaked. I'm talking about 14 holes underwater, some as deep as 6 feet, with fast-moving water lifting up asphalt paths and slow-moving water leaving behind small mountains of silt and debris. It was normal to watch our on-course restroom facilities float away. That's how I rated the floods. One portable commode floating off downriver was understandably a Category 1 flood. Municipal headquarters would call and say, what's the rating? Two portable units floating away, a Cat 2, usually meant a severe flood. A Cat 3 meant someone else's portable restroom was going downriver, and we even had a Cat 5 rating on the books where a golf pro might be trapped inside a unit floating off toward the rapids. That was kind of the holy grail of floods. But alas, a Cat 5 never happened. Some courses just flooded once every 10 years, and only a few holes, but by 92 was having these epic biblical floods, mostly because of all the new pavement upstream in Atlanta. It is unbelievably disturbing to have a course playing well, looking okay, and flood comes along and leaves sandy, silty sediment four feet deep along with some kind of slippery muck on top for hundreds of yards. Several greens, those built alongside the creeks or the infamous South River, suffered huge piles of this same suffocating, airtight ceiling, sandy muck. Several miles downstream of us, the South River once sucked an entire green into the river. The architect of that course should have stayed in Myrtle Beach. Over the years, I developed a system for dealing with floods. The first, and hardest thing to do, is to be patient and wait. Jumping out there full of enthusiasm to show you're taking action will usually just scar the course up, leaving ruts that will make you look like an idiot several weeks later. The first physical step I took was always to send out our bobcat with the rotating sweeper brush to try and clear the cart paths. This was essential because various county officials, golf pros, men's golf association presidents, and their mother-in-laws, and people looking for their trampolines, above ground pools, and Ford Pintos, they're required to see the course. It's necessary for them to assess things and then report back to their constituencies. These folks will always slip off the cart path thanks to the slimy, slippery muck and cause a terrible problem for you to fix. If you can get the paths clean and reasonably dry, then the various officials can ride the course, shake their heads knowingly and offer advice based upon their lawn, their driveway, and the one time their basement flooded. Getting the silty, sandy muck off the green surface is next. Once you can get to the greens, a skilled flat-tip shovel operator can gently remove the stuff off the surface. 
Squeegees work, but they kind of act like top dressing rakes and leave some behind, so those are probably better as a second step. You can then hook up a hose and wash it off or wait for things to dry using a blower or any other brilliant idea to make you feel like you're doing something constructive. Know this, the flood has probably introduced several billion weed seeds. My favorite was various and sundry sedge seeds. So don't be shocked when your pre-emergent costs increase along with your blood pressure. Now, if you had the good sense to place your controllers on elevated mounds or at least sealed them in plastic bags, start checking your stations and marking heads with the flags because in the next phase, when you deploy the innovative drag mats you invented to drag out the silty sand, you know, you're probably gonna have one of these mats reach down, grab an irrigation head and yank it out of the ground. If you drag the sandy mess, it dries quicker and leads to another fix I favored, the providential top dressing. I eventually quit fighting nature. Instead of hauling off the stuff, I used it to reshape the fairways, left it in place, shaped it, groomed it, sawed it over it, and the next time it flooded, nature top dressed somewhere else. Now as one of the few golf course superintendents ever to be awarded an Army Corps of Engineers permit, I learned something about golf course floods that you'll need to know if you ever assume control over a flood-prone golf course. If you want to correct the problem, you have to understand it. And that means going out there during the flood, standing in the rain, and watching the flood begin, develop, and end. You have to discover the pattern and ascertain what is triggering the initial stages of the flood. It might be a narrow bridge backing things up and not allowing the water to disperse downstream. It might be the genius architect interfered with the natural flow of water between two creeks by planting a giant bunker cluster in the wrong place, or wrong-sized a culvert to save money. Once you ID the problem, it might be a simple fix like resizing a culvert or removing it and replacing it with a bridge or just a stabilized stream bank widened to increase flow. By watching floods, lots of them, I discovered the problems were legion. First, the genius architect had cut ditches at 90 degree angles from the fairway to the river. When the river began to flood, it conveniently released into the golf course long before the river ever reached flood stage. I found that altering the angles to 45 degrees and lengthening the ditches into more attractive serpentine creeks that opened in the large marsh areas allowed flood time to lengthen. It took much longer for the flood to spill onto the fairways, and sometimes the river had even begun to recede before the water hit the fairways. The course could hold even more water in the marsh areas without letting it sit on fairways for eight hours. And that's when it dropped most of the silt, when it was just sitting there. Our plan, developed by the county golf course operations manager, Gary Reddy, and my own self, was not to stop the flooding, but to reduce the flood damage. Instead of the course being closed for three months after a one-inch rain, now we could withstand a flood event and be open the next day. When we created the marshes to help contain the runoff, we used the dirt to raise the fairways. This required moving cart paths, raising irrigation and the like, but at least we could open for play. Play went up by substantial numbers, and then the predators closed in, naturally. They said words like privatization and more efficient, which usually means they want to do what we did and make a profit too. When I left, because I was suspicious of anybody who claimed they could be more efficient than me, well, anyway, when I left, I cautioned my replacement to keep the pump intakes, creeks, and marshes cleaned out and free of silt, sand, shrubs, and trees. He didn't listen because he was more concerned about how to get rid of them bent grasses he had on his greens. Famous equipment rep Alan Weed, during a visit, assured the individual that getting rid of bent grass would be no problem, just keep doing what he was doing. 
Years later, one of those know-it-all superintendents approached me and said, your plan didn't work because the course still floods, but I've been consulting with them. I started to tell him the plan was never to stop the floods in the first place, but just to minimize the damage. But I just fell back on my standard answer. Well, of course it still floods. My secret plan was to hold bass fishing tournaments there. But for the rest of you out there, my final advice on golf courses that flood regularly is get the hell out of there. Hey, Lurleen, you playing 9 or 18 today? No, I just want to hit a bucket of balls. Oh, and I just love how colorful the driving range is. Yep, I had Buddy vinyl guard all the range furniture. The targets, the barrels, the bench, even the bag stand. We're testing vinyl guard on my fishing pole, too. Everything's just so bright and cheery. The best part is we don't have to constantly paint and replace things anymore. We put pink vinyl guard on a set of flag sticks and put them out on Ladies' Day. You know, it used to be a problem to carry around flag sticks in the ute. It scuffed up the poles and made them look awful. Remember to vinyl guard all of your weather-exposed golf equipment and keep things looking sharp. Let's talk about crow deterrence. The elusive winged vandal who works in broad daylight, the crow, is becoming more active on golf courses now. Crows have a face-mounted pickaxe capable of ripping up greens while searching for grubs and cutworms. Countermeasures are difficult, especially with houses lining the course, so it's probably time to consider an escalation. Hiring ex-military, especially those familiar with ghillie suits, would be perfect for anti-crow ops. Crows are incredibly smart, and they know when you have a weapon. The silenced pellet rifle, hidden in a case, say for like a laser beacon tripod or the like, would allow for covert crow ops even in urban golf environments. Not only will crows dig up a green, but they're criminals. A golf course at Callaway Gardens used to have a gang of muffin-stealing crows waiting in ambush at number 10 green. They'd wait for the golfer to get to the green, and when he's trying to putt, the crow would attack, stealing muffins, keys, glasses. You know, come to think of it, they're smarter than most armed robbers. I'm reminded of a story I picked up from that turf professor lingerie photographer. Now, there's somebody who's prepared for the three-phase career. But anyway... It seems there was a study conducted on the Pennsylvania Turnpike dealing with crows. Apparently, crows like to eat animals that were struck by a car. To safely accomplish this, the crow posts a sentry to warn when a car was coming, especially a high-speed car. The mystery was a lot of crows were being killed by trucks, but not cars. So they funded a study and soon revealed that although crows could pronounce the word car, they had trouble with the word truck. Okay, it's time for the greatest ever golf course maintenance stuff. First up, the greatest golf course dog ever. That would be Rudy the Weimaraner, who belonged to David and Susan. I cannot mention the name of the club because you have to protect reputations and stuff. Anyway, David and Susan told me Rudy's story, and after hearing hundreds of golf course dog stories, I knew Rudy's story had to be told. Rudy, like a lot of dogs, enjoyed cigarettes and coffee with lots of sugar and cream. But that's not what elevated him to golf course dog hall of fame status. Rudy possessed a special skill. Not goose patrol or night guard duty, Rudy could discern whether or not the golf pro was good or evil. If Rudy disapproved of the pro, he left visible evidence of his unhappiness on the driver's side of the pro's car. This was not just something he was taught. He could actually determine, without coaching, the level of goodness or badness in the pro. 
During his time on the course, Rudy disapproved of two out of five club pros and saw to it that the offenders had to watch their step. Next up, the greatest ever golf course maintenance magazine. Well, it's TurfNet, of course. The first to go completely digital and stop wasting trees. The first to come up with Superintendent of the Year. Technician of the Year. The Dog Calendar. TurfNet even came up with the best golf tournament during the big show. Oh, and TurfNet was the first to produce broadcast quality video with Hector and Kiger and Kevin and that other guy. The greatest golf cart control technique ever thought up belongs to, well, I, I can't tell you who it belongs to, but he suggested tagging unruly golf carts with color-coded markings. If a golf cart refuses to stay out of forbidden areas, the cart is tagged with paint delivered by a paintball gun. Yellow means watch this cart, it's on probation. Orange indicated the cart has ventured off the path several times, causing damage, and the next violation is the third strike. Red paint, well, that meant take the keys out of that cart at the first opportunity. Usually when the golfer is out of the cart putting or visiting the washroom facilities, never take the key when the golfer is close to the clubhouse, because the penitence is not memorable enough. Collateral damage is always acceptable, even though the golfer is not at fault, it's just part of the risk of riding on a bad golf cart. Okay, here's the Ludell interview, commonly acknowledged as the greatest golf personnel interview ever. A few years back, a golf trade mag interviewed Ludell, and here is the unedited tape of that interview. So, your name is Ludell, and you have a tendency Ludell. for... Ludell! It's Ludell! Your name is Ludell. You might odd looking. What publication you with? Okay. Ain't that one of them old-fashioned print magazines? We'll be totally online by 2050. Look, I ain't gonna say nothing suggestive to trigger and microaggress you, so if that's what you're after, just best quit right now. <laughs> you seem to be under the impression that you're one of the few in golf who tells it straight up without bowing and scraping to the, uh, what did you call them? The, uh... Alphabets. Agencies and associations with the cornucopia of alphabetical acronyms who exist on dues, fees, rules, and fear. The very ones you kowtow to. Just shameful. You seem uncomfortable with golf. Tell us, why did you choose golf as a career? Didn't have no choice. It was walk mow or no biscuits. Tell us about the real Ludell. Lady, I ain't real. I'm a character based on a crew worker R.W. knew back in 1970. Good golly. Did the original Lou Dell have a mustache and a shag haircut? No, my look comes from pictures I seen of Ken Mangum back in 72. Ain't you never seen Ken before he got all slicked up? Okay, let's try a different tact. You said you hate the term working superintendent. Are there jobs where the superintendent doesn't work? Nope, that phrase is just code for don't apply unless you're a genius superintendent who doesn't mind doing all the work because the crew consists of the club president's spoiled sons. Oh, when a green committee says they want a master plan, what does that mean? Means they want an expensive blueprint from a couple of alphabets that say plant a whole bunch of trees and flowers and then squeeze blood from a rock and mow it at .085. Well, I was told you're old-fashioned, anti-tech, and lacking in a science foundation. Does the name Ludell give you any kind of a hint? So, you're a Luddite. Nope, Baptist. Let's test your science knowledge. Does a low number mean high pH? What? Do you roll your greens? Not since I bought a vaporizer. 
Oh, they're waving at me behind the glass. That's a signal for me to change the subject. A famous PhD recently said, Ludell's so-called organic practices are tantamount to snake oil. Tantamount, huh? Every time I suggest less costly, less complicated, old-fashioned golf maintenance, one of them ivory towel fellas commences purse swinging at me. Did you once interrupt an important seminar to run outside and see yourself on a Google satellite? Yeah, but I've since learned what I did was wrong. Now when I do it, I wear bright colors. Is it true you are twitterless? Listen, you can't believe anything my ex-wife says. I was referring to social media. Yeah, you're getting a mite personal, ain't you? Let's just skip the medical stuff. Okay, how about your favorite TV shows? Well, I hate the Stimpsons. Just that name puts me on edge. I like House of Cards. It's kind of like a green committee meeting. Folks is always getting done away with. Kind of a fantasy show for me. Say, you wearing a wig? What? What's this? Ha! Ah, you're a... The interview abruptly ends here. Apparently, Ludell realized the reporter was actually a male writer from a TurfNet competitor and he was disguised in a wig and a short skirt. The writer was in disguise because of a previous attack on Rock Bottom for using wigs and other props. The writer fled and was not seen again. Sometime later, Ludell had this to say. I was completely taken in. I missed all the signs. Her skirt didn't fit, purse didn't match her shoes, and it was that mustache. I should have noticed the mustache. Hey, what's for lunch today? We're having steak. What kind? Well, how do you feel about tenderloins? Well, now that you mention it, they are a mite sore. Hey, you gonna do story time today? Yeah, I suppose. What do you want to hear? Well, I'm in the mood for a story with a moral to it that'll show them millennials that they're the laziest bunch Wait, of... Wait, I have a story, but it might not be exactly what you want. See, I believe the millennials aren't a whole lot different than previous generations. It's just the environment they function in has changed. What are you talking about? I just wanted a story. And you shall have one. It's story time. A long time ago, in the generation before the boomers, my dad and one of his buddies went to the Air Force recruiters to join up to the Air Force. The girls threw a big going away party and it was a wonderful affair and off they went to Memphis to become airmen. It was a minor complication, however. Dad and his buddy didn't score high enough to be airmen and they were rejected. As they stood on the sidewalk wondering what it would be like to return home as non-airmen, especially after a big party with cake and ice cream and lots of hugs from pretty girls, Dad noticed a recruiting poster for the airborne. Hey. Dad said as he pointed at the poster of a paratrooper exiting the aircraft. Let's join the paratroopers. It has the word air in it and we still get to fly in airplanes. But what about the jumping out of airplanes part? Asked Dad's buddy. Oh well, Dad said as he opened the recruiter's office door. When it comes to that, we just won't jump. They signed up and went off to basic training, where on the first day, Dad was snuggled in his warm bed when somebody started blowing a trumpet playing some kind of progressive jazz, probably French since it was called Reveille. Moments later, a drill sergeant came upstairs to check on Dad since he had not shown up for formation. When asked why he did not come downstairs to join the rest of the group, Dad replied, Oh, I'm just gonna sleep a little more. I'll be along in a little while. The drill sergeant then rudely turned over Dad's bed, grabbed him by the neck of his newly issued t-shirt, and kicked Dad down the stairs. 
using boots applied repeatedly upon Dad's buttocks until Dad joined the formation. They then did lots of marching and drill and ceremony and stuff like that. And Although it was uncomfortable doing all that in his underwear while everybody else had on clothes, Dad learned it was important to get out of bed and show up on time. A few months later, when they asked him to step out of a C-47 at 1,500 feet, Dad forgot about his slacker strategy to just not jump, and he leaped out without hesitation. So you're telling me the moral of the story is we should just kick the millennials' butts? No, you're supposed to read between the lines. Every generation starts out a little unfocused, and then when they wake up, they do great things. The environment they're dealing with at the time has a lot to do with their success. Well, I like my interpretation better. I'm gonna get me some bigger boots. You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.